right, let's take our Bibles and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Kids were especially ready to go today because I talked for too long at the beginning. I want to remind you that um, the, or if, if you did, if you weren't aware, the memorial service for Pastor Eric's father is this Saturday um, in in South Carolina. So uh, they're gone traveling today. They'll be back home for a few days this week, but then they'll be turned right back around to go. Uh, to his dad's service. So um, let us pray for their, their family this week and uh, for Pastor Eric, for his mom, his siblings um, during this time of loss. Um, they are rejoicing in his dad's steadfast love for the Lord and hope in Jesus. So let's pause and pray for them. Father, we ask for your grace for the true family uh, today. We think especially of Pastor Eric's mother, that you would draw her very near to you and comfort her with your presence and your care in a way that only you can. But do help all the people around her to know how to love and care for her. I pray for Pastor Eric's uh, sisters, and I pray for him that you would deeply comfort and encourage his heart let the gospel shine on Saturday at that service just as his, his father would want and give them your strength for a hard week. We commit ourselves now to you as we come to this hard verse. Teach us yourself and your ways and let us see what that means for us and our hearts and who we are. By the work of your Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you look with me? Let's read the first six verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Two weeks ago, we surveyed Louise Perry's book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. One of her chapters begins with these words, Wherever armies are to be found, brothels are to be found, and often with more or less explicit sanction from military authorities. And she goes on to describe both the historic and current practice of what is essentially institutionalized sex slavery, especially during times of war that has deeply scarred probably hundreds of thousands of young women and men. That's how she begins her, tit- her chapter that is titled, People Are Not Products, which could also be the title of this sermon. The way the Bible would say it is here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The word wrong in verse 6 is often translated take advantage of or defraud or exploit. The Lord is the avenger of those who sexually exploit others. Now we might say, I'd never exploit someone. And yet Paul wrote to a group of genuine believers who were growing in the Lord, and apparently some of them didn't realize that they were exploiting others sexually, or at least they were close to doing so. And so before we brush this off too quickly, let's listen carefully to the Word of the Lord. Look back at verse 1 for just a moment. Verse 1 essentially tells us that we should all desire to please God more and more. And then verse 3 tells us what pleases God. The will of God is our sanctification, which as we've learned is our continuing growth to be less like the world and more like the holy set-apart people of God. And then, beginning in, at the end of that verse, we have an explanation of what sanctification looks like in terms of sexual temptations, and it's organized around three that's. If you're the kind of person who marks in your Bible, then here's a great thing to mark, the three that's. So verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, here's number one, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Number two, in verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And then verse 6 is number 3, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So we've studied the first two that's, and today we come to that third one in verse 6. This directs our attention then to the horizontal nature of sexual sin, in other words, the way in which it is against and between people. We've already learned that sexual immorality is, by definition, against God's created purposes for sex. So it is vertical, but it's also horizontal in the damage that it does to others. When we see the word in verse 6, when we transgress, so again, that's the word for defying God's boundaries. When we defy God's boundaries for sexuality, we also wrong others even when we commit sexual sin all alone. That sin still harms other people directly or indirectly. We saw some examples of that in our lesson last Sunday. So, verse 6 is negative. Don't transgress and wrong your brother. But this passage also says it positively back in verse 4. Because verse 4 says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And the word honor refers to the significance or the value that you place upon something. And here, it's probably referring to the significance or value that you place upon other people, as well as upon yourself and your God-given body. Remember the picture Pastor John showed us last Sunday? That ancient fortress was guarded by those strong walls because it held something valuable. It held the lives of hundreds of soldiers. Well, now the soldiers aren't there and the walls are mostly knocked down, but today it's valuable because it's this really remarkable archaeological site. So as we noted in that picture, 
the road into the fortress is walled off with boulders so that no one can just drive in there and tear up something that's so valuable. Maybe some of the kids or young people here got a present for Christmas that's really valuable and you haven't let anybody else touch it yet and you're not planning on it because it really matters to you. When we consider something valuable, we protect it. We treat it with honor. And so what this teaches us is that we should, number one on your handout, pursue the set-apartness of self-control motivated by honor. Instead of doing what the whole world tells us to do today, and that is follow your own heart, instead what we do is we consider others. We consider how we might protect and bless others, even if that means we have to have self-control. We view other people as highly valuable because God created them in His image. And that's a new mindset. That's the transformed mind of Romans 12 that then motivates us to sexual self-control because we honor other people and we honor their bodies as well as honoring this body that God gave to us. So self-control and holy sexuality are motivated by love for others looking on them with their God-given value. Romans 13 is on your handout. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So this principle applies broadly to, to pornography, to prostitution, and so forth. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But first of all, I want us to make sure we remember that with principles like this, we need to apply them in marriage as well. As I said two weeks ago, marriage is no guarantee of holy God-honoring sexuality. How quickly married couples can begin to take each other for granted or even to think poorly of one another. When you live in such close proximity, you see the worst of each other. And if you don't keep viewing your spouse from God's perspective you will probably begin to dishonor them. And dishonor in marriage really messes up the sexual relationship because the the husband and wife aren't motivated to serve the other person with unselfish love. Honor motivates unselfish love. That's why 1 Peter 3 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's why Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives. View her as so precious that you would lay down your entire life for her. And wives, respect your husbands. And Titus 2, train the young women to love their husbands. Love and respect and honor lead to self-control. They lead to unselfishness. That leads to a beautiful sexual relationship in marriage. So let's apply principles like this to to marriage, but then let's broaden it beyond marriage now. What would it look like if every human being viewed every other human being as having great value, as something honorable, as someone worth protecting? Would there be abortion? Would there be euthanasia? Would there be genocide? Would there be prostitution? Would there be sex trafficking? Would there be rape? Would there be pornography? Would there be 
casual hooking up. Those things cannot exist unless people are cheap. Two weeks ago, we saw these quotes from Louise Perry. We should treat, and this is, remember, this is a British agnostic talking, not a Christian. We should treat our sexual partners with dignity. We should not regard other people as merely body parts to be enjoyed. We should aspire to love and mutuality. We should prioritize virtue over desire. In another place, she says, I am going to propose an alternative form of sexual culture, one that recognizes other human beings as real people invested with real value and dignity. She doesn't admit it, but the alternative culture she's envisioning is biblical culture. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, honor everyone. That's what God says. God commands us to give to everyone their priceless God-given value. Treat everyone as God's treasure, created by Him, belonging to Him. That mindset would turn us away from treating people in their bodies as if they are cheap entertainment for our lustful passions. So when we talk about sexual relationships in terms of how we treat one another, the positive way to say it is in verse 4, treat one another with honor. Honor everyone. The negative way to say it is in verse 6, don't harm one another. Pursue the set-apartness that never harms another. Honor everyone, harm no one. The challenge is that when it comes to sexuality, if we don't have self-control, we can easily harm others and we might not even realize we're doing it. All we have to do is transgress, which simply means we say, yeah, I know what God's boundary is, but I don't really like it. I think the boundary ought to be over here. I'm not going to go over there, not that stuff, but this stuff that's beyond God's boundary is, is fine for me, I think. We don't think to ourselves, I want to go exploit someone else. And yet, when we transgress God's way, that is what we do in God's sight. That no one, verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Again, the word wrong means to take advantage of or to exploit. Followers of Jesus must be committed to never sexually exploiting other people. And yet, if we feed our flesh on pornography or immoral movies or games or shows or whatever, we are taking part in the exploitation. Not to mention that we're harming the people in our real relationships by the damage we're doing to our own soul with those sexual sins. Even if you can rationalize a way in which your sexual sin is not doing any harm to anyone else, I guarantee you it is because of what it's doing to you. In addition to those things, actual sexual relationships often involve one person taking advantage of another, even when there is consent. And so wherever we face sexual temptation, one of our reactions should be from the new, renewed mind of a Christian, we should say, no, I'm not going to harm others. I'm not going to harm my girlfriend's relationship with God by getting her to sleep with me. I'm not going to harm my wife by sneaking immoral things I'm going to look at. 
I'm not going to take advantage of that person who's showing off their body to get attention. Why? Because my God says that person is precious. That person is not a commodity to be bought and sold. That's not a body to be shown off for the world as if anybody could have it. God owns that person. That's God's treasure. That's God's unique creation. I mean, if each snowflake and each fingerprint are unique, how much more so each person? Would we exploit God's creation to satisfy our sexual cravings? Well, our hearts are willing to do that. But in Christ, we don't have to do that. And it should be our commitment that by God's grace, we don't want to ever do that. Don't be like the world where people take advantage of one another without a second thought. God's holy people should never be like that. Pursue the set-apartness that never harms another. Now, I need to bring this closer to home literally in two ways, and this will not be fun, but necessary. First, we need to say out loud, publicly, sexual harm too often happens in homes. Boyfriends and girlfriends, husbands and wives, parents and children, the statistics are terrible. The things that should be unthinkable happen hundreds of thousands of times every year in households. And so I just want to say a couple things about that. If, if anyone here has been the one harming others in the home, don't cover that up another day. Get help. You fear the consequences for yourself. Of course you do. But from a renewed mind as a Christian, you ought to fear the harm done to other people more than you fear the consequences for yourself of being honest. And if any of you have been a victim of sexual harm and you've never gotten help, I hope you know that you can. If someone else is doing wrong to you, if they are sexually taking advantage of you, that's not your fault even if they try to tell you it is. If they are threatening you that you can't ever tell anyone, that's not true. You can find a safe person here at church who can help you make a plan to get out of that abusive situation. There is help. It's not your fault. No one ever has the right to take advantage of your body. And there are people who will believe you and they will protect you and they will help you. So first of all, tragically, sexual harm can happen in homes, in households, in intimate relationships. And then it can also happen somewhere else that is tragic, and we see it right here in verse 6 in our text, that no one transgress and wrong his brother, his Christian brother or sister in Christ. Sexual harm can happen in the church. That might be in an abusive way. There are tragic stories of sexual abuse in churches. There have been even here in our local community. Not in our church, but in our local community and other churches in this area. And so I just want to say to all of us this morning, we are all part of the solution to that and the protection against that. If you ever see anything suspicious, if there is ever anything questionable, please act on it right away call the right authorities, tell the leadership. All of us need to be like the neighborhood watch 
for a community of people like this. Because a church family is a trusting community, it, it needs to be a trusting community. But it is also a community of real human beings. And so it is urgent for all of us to keep an eye out for anything that doesn't seem right. But sexual harm in the church doesn't just happen in the directly abusive ways. It can also happen as consenting Christians commit immorality with one another. There may have been some of that going on in the church family in Thessalonica. Remember, God's standard is sex between one man and one woman in a faithful marriage within a marriage covenant made before God and witnesses. And to give your bodies to one another in a sexual relationship outside of that is immorality. No matter how much you might be in love no matter how much both people might enjoy it, they're harming one another because they're helping one another sin. And so the point, actually, the point our text is making here about this is if you do that, you're harming your sibling. You're committing sexual exploitation of your own sibling in the family of God. You're sinning against your child and you're, against God's child and you're sinning against your own family member. When Paul gives instructions about life in the local church, he says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 2, treat younger women as sisters in all purity. Young men, treat them as sisters. Don't commit immorality with your sister in Christ. It doesn't matter that everybody in all the movies does it. You're not in all the movies. You're a real child of God. And young women, if a young man makes you feel like you need to give your body to him, if you really like him, that young man doesn't understand true love. He is not ready to be a spiritual leader. He does not yet have his mind and heart transformed to be like Christ. You need to run away from him as fast as you can. So whether it's in marriage in the home, in dating, in the church, in pornography, we must pursue the kind of set-apartness that never exploits others, never takes advantage of others, never cheapens other people as if they're just products to be consumed. It's continuing out of the middle of verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. You thought it couldn't get more sober this morning. <laughs> The Lord is the avenger. If you mess with God's precious creation, then the creator judge will come after you. The Lord's wrath comes upon those who take advantage of others. The word avenger here is a legal term for the judge who ensures just punishment for everyone who does wrong to others. This isn't vengeance in a sinful sense. It's, it's a just judge who's committed to protecting the innocent and vulnerable or, or like a good D.A. who goes after those who exploit others. Because God created every person, that means that everything horizontal is also vertical. Whenever we sin against someone else, we also sin against the Lord. It might surprise us a little bit to see here in verse 6 that it is the Lord Jesus who is the avenger. Well, at least every other time Paul uses the word Lord in this letter, he's talking about Jesus. And so it is very likely that it is the Lord Jesus he's referring to. Would you turn up ahead with me just maybe one page in your Bible? 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 6. 
Since, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So what we are ultimately talking about here is hell. Matthew chapter 5, 20, verses 28 through 30. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, a child of God, to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So many passages illustrate that God is the defender of the poor, the vulnerable, the weak, and anyone who is taken advantage of. You cannot take advantage of anyone without incurring the wrath of God. Now, we need to take this one step further. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 6 with me again. Look at the middle phrase again. Because the Lord is an avenger in what? What does it say? All these things. All of these types of sexual immorality. Not just when someone else exploits someone else. Not just sexual abuse or something like that. In all of these matters of sexual immorality, the Lord is the avenger. He avenges all rebellion against His will and His way for sexuality. All right. Three things we need to do in conclusion. Number one, we need to remember the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. Washed completely clean. You were sanctified, set apart from in this world and into God's family and kingdom. You were justified, declared not guilty by the judge of all. And this was in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God saves great sinners. There is no sexual sin beyond the reach of His forgiveness if that sinner will humbly repent and believe and give their life to Christ. The Bible promises great salvation for great sinners. We saw this earlier in 1 Thessalonians. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. How? Verse 9. The end of verse 9. How you turned to God from idols... And there's probably no greater idol today than the idol of of sexual pleasure. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and await for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, 
who delivers us from the wrath to come. Wait, that's the same Jesus who avenges all sexual immorality? Right, that's the same Jesus who delivers you from the wrath to come. He, on the cross, he took that vengeance upon himself. He took the penalty for our sexual sin in our place. That's why he's the one who can deliver us from the wrath to come, though we deserve it. That's why Paul can call them brothers loved by God in verse 4. Because Jesus saved them. So no matter what sexual sin there might be in your story, God sent a Savior for you. You're not past his forgiveness. You're not beyond his love if you're willing to humbly turn to Christ. So first of all, as we read a passage like this, we have to remember the gospel. Secondly, we need to remember that sexual temptation is a common experience for nearly every Christian. Fighting against sinful temptation is a normal part of Christian living. Why is that important to remember? Because you could sit through this sermon on this passage and you could say to yourself, okay, wow, now I know that I can never talk about my struggles with sexual sin at church. If sexual sin is this serious, then I am never going to mention my fight against pornography, my struggle with same-sex desire, my temptation to imagine being married to someone else other than my spouse. I'm not going to mention how broken our sexual relationship is in our marriage or my immoral relationship or my abortion or my pregnancy outside of marriage. This passage shows me that you don't ever talk about anything like that at church. That's not true. This passage is talking about that. 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about that. God's, this passage is heavy, yes. God's anger against sexual sin is very serious, yes. But this passage isn't the whole Bible. That's why we just talked about gospel, because God saves sinners. And even after he saves sinners, every saved sinner still has to fight against sinful desires all the way to the end of our life. Not one Christian here today could honestly look back at this last week and say, oh man, holiness this week was a cinch. No problem. No challenge. Easy. Liar. (laughs) For some people, sexual temptations were a big part of that challenge. But for others, it was other things. The world, the flesh, and the devil always make it hard. And so to say, well, you obviously can't talk about sexual sin at church, is just not true. It's the place where you ought to talk about it. Now, I don't mean that you should tell, everybody your, tell everyone about your sexual struggles at every opportunity, as if you're excited to just let everybody know. And I'm certainly not saying that you have to be okay with the whole church knowing about your struggles with some particular sin. That is not what I'm saying. I'm talking about two or three other mature brothers or sisters whom you know will pray for you, care for you, help you grow. Sometimes it's a good idea to talk to your pastors too, depending on the situation. But the point is that a church family should be a group of humble, caring, redeemed sinners who love one another with tremendous grace while we help each other grow and live in holiness. We don't pat each other on the back for sin. But we love one another. We help one another when we're struggling with sin. We grow together. That's the second thing we need to remember. Third thing we need to remember is that this passage wasn't written to non-Christians. 
Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, then God planned this passage for you today. He's speaking to you. He's calling you to come to Christ today. But if we look at what's actually who this was originally written to, this is my point. It was written to Christians. These warnings about taking advantage of others were written to followers of Jesus. See, we haven't actually looked at the end of verse 6 yet. The end of verse 6 says, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This wasn't the first time that Paul had challenged them about these things. Back when he planted the church, when they were just brand new Christians, he started teaching them about holy sexuality. But now they needed a sober reminder again. So this shows us our need for the ongoing nourishment from God's Word to win the victory over sexual immorality. You're not going to find the one perfect book about pornography that's just going to fix it for you. It's going to take the constant feeding. Now, God can take a book or a sermon and really spark change through it. But after that, it's going to take the constant nourishment and reminders of His Word. We need to hear the promises again and again and again. And we need to hear the warnings again and again and again. Without that, without the regular nourishment of His Word and the work of His Spirit, we drift towards seeing other people as products. Something we can use to serve ourselves. But when the Word is flowing into our heart and God's Spirit is using it, then our mind is renewed so that we see things His way, we see people His way, and we treat them with true biblical love and honor instead of sexual sin. All right, I want to finish this morning with the same benediction from two weeks ago. But there's just a, you can look at it with me because we are, we're looking at a different part of it this morning. It's going to be at the end of 1 Thessalonians 3. So let me just say a brief word of prayer and then I'll read this as our, as our benediction. Father, we pray now for these things that have been preached from your word. Please grant us soft hearts that the seeds sown might grow fruit a hundredfold in holy sexuality in the lives of each one here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, look with me now. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. And look how verse 12 fits so beautifully with what we said we've learned today. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then chapter 5, verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.